Well, I've entitled the sermon, Whatever My God Ordains is Right, and I'm going to hope to demonstrate that thoroughly to you this morning. So we're at 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So let me give us a context for suffering this morning. This letter is in response to a a growing opposition and persecution towards the believers in Asia Minor from the pagan society that they were living in. And this letter is Peter's attempt to sort of uh, settle the concerns of those people that were in the society whose lives had experienced hostility and suspicion from the pagan empire especially in the light of the fact that their lifestyles had changed so much, and they were always talking about some other kingdom where they were anticipating coming, and they were being reviled and verbally abused for that. And Christians had been provoking the opposition of the pagan society because they had removed themselves from the usual and accepted pagan way of living. And so we see suffering as an important sub-theme in this epistle, the word suffering appears 16 times in the, in the um, epistle and four times in the passage we're looking at this morning. So it's really important to get a, a good understanding of what suffering is. In fact, there are more references to suffering in First Peter than do any other New Testament epistle, which is pretty interesting really when you think about it because no apostle had more problem accepting the idea of Christ's suffering and being rejected by the Jews and Peter, and yet this is the main subject that he's talking about, and he's finally come around to accepting and believing it, but he also understands why that has happened. And so much of Peter's theme of suffering is about suffering for righteousness' sake, and that's what we're going to be focused on this morning. And I think that as Peter's writing here and thinking about writing to servants in particular in this passage in 18, and then the need for them to suffer, he's reminded of that great suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, and he references it here in this paragraph we're looking at. And even though the the believers in this epistle had removed themselves from the pagan worldview that they were living under, they were also urged to remain bound to the institution's of this pagan world. And so, 
as I pointed out in, in point number two in the outline, he was saying, be submissive aliens to any created institution, whether it be slavery or the government or your marriage, but don't submit to that pagan worldview related to those things. And so they were to continue to submit to not only the created institutions that had been established, but to every societal institution that they were under as well. So if the Christian slave had a pagan master that was overbearing and abusive to him, that slave was to submit to that master. Or if a Christian wife had a pagan husband, she was to submit to his authority as well. And so Christians were just simply being asked to always do good within their faith, within the relationships that they were in. They were to do what was proper and responsible according to the institutions of this world while they were living here as submissive aliens, exiles, and sojourners in this world. And they were urged to be submissive even though the pagan worldview had been described by Peter in the first part of the chapter or of the epistle as corruptible and defiled and fading away. And so they were to be obedient and subjected to the created institutions of this pagan world because it was God who had established those institutions. And in this doing good, they were going to be disproving the insinuations that were being leveled against them and be witnesses to Christ by means of their conduct, especially when they had to suffer unjustly as his disciples. And so he begins in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And last week, Travis had begun to talk to us about the idea of being submissive or being subjected to the orders that God had established back in verse 13 of chapter 2. And so there must have been a question going around that they were asking themselves, to what extent should a Christian obey pagan rulers? Should we obey to the extent that we suffer wrongfully at the whim of someone who's crooked or someone who deviates from what is actually right and good. And so this became critical to answer as Christians were being reviled and were being spoken against and antagonized, especially when they were in reality doing what was genuinely good. And so back in verse 13, Peter had started to answer the question, beginning with the most general umbrella idea first, the biggest general category first, and he was saying, be subject to every human institution. Make yourself subject to every created ordinance governed by man, whether by kings or governors. So the big idea that he begins with is to subject yourselves to any authority that is over and above you for the Lord's sake, he says. Because when you do good in those situations, you muzzle their ignorance, he says and show everyone that they are foolish to claim that your deeds are evil, when in reality everyone can see that they are good. And folks, the fact that 
foolish and evil men live in this world. There's no reason for the Christian to stop doing good. Doing good is to be the Christian's habitual conduct, as we see in this epistle. And so here in verse 18, then, talking about servants, he's just carrying on with, the more, with more examples of the kinds of institutions one should expect to subject themselves to. And then he begins in verse 18 with the institution of slavery. I take it that there aren't any slaves in here. So how do we make this apropos to us? I think there are actually five words in the New Testament for this servant-master relationship. Peter uses the word oiketes, and it comes from the, the Greek word which means to dwell in. And so this word for servant has a strong sense of someone who's domesticated. It's really different than the 20th century or earlier idea of slavery that we're all accustomed to. In this relationship, they're still a slave, but they're a servant slave that's part of the household. And so they have a stronger relationship to the family, but aren't necessarily born into the family. In some older Greek documents, this word oiketes also referred even to a wife and children to show you the relationship idea of being in the family even more thoroughly. And so this word for servant speaks more to a servant's relationship to the master or person that's over them rather than the kind of work that he does. It's not as strong as the word you're probably more familiar with, doulos, that you've heard before. So Peter is saying that these servants are to show reverence and respect for the authority and the rank of their owner or master being submissive to them. So let me see, let me help you see how this idea of biblical slavery and servanthood should be understood within the biblical context and is radically different from any idea that we have. And it's particularly radically different from the atheist view that suggests that God is somehow unjust because he sanctions slavery in the Bible. The biblical idea of being submissive means that these servants are to place themselves arrange themselves or assign themselves under the station to which they were appointed. And so in point number three on your outline then, placing oneself under the authority of someone over you in any institution you are related to is actually the definition of what godliness is in the New Testament. And so in the New Testament, godliness means living lives in correct relationship to God's revealed doctrines and his truth and the orders that he has ordained in this world. When men are said to be godly in the New Testament, that means we are reverencing in the proper way. We're reverencing in the proper way the doctrine and the truth and the hierarchy that God has ordered in this world. And so reverencing those orders in the proper way is... Um, shows us that God has ordained them and he is genuinely pleased when we respond in that way. So in Greek thought, godliness is directed not simply toward a proper response to God, but includes having a respect for the orders that God has created, whether those orders are in our domestic life or our church and religious life or whether they are in our political life. 
Because true godliness holds these orders that God has created in highest esteem and wants to avoid transgressing against them because that would be displeasing to God. And so let me give you two examples respecting how we should understand this idea of submissive and being subjected uh, to divine hierarchy. The Ten Commandments all demonstrate, actually, what true godliness essentially looks like. So, for example, if you were reverencing God correctly, you wouldn't want to worship any kind of form that you made that represented him or that you've created in your mind that isn't actually God himself. You wouldn't want to treat his name as if it had no significance or it was a breath or you took it in vain. You made it to be something of no significance. Likewise, then, moving down into other relationships, you would want to honor your parents that God has positioned over you and it would go right with you as children when you honor them because God has positioned them where they are. Furthermore, in relating to other people around you, you would never want to let hatred begin to rule in your heart for anyone. You would want to be devoted to loving your wife that God has given you. Furthermore, don't steal from anyone. Don't tell lies about someone else. Don't desire what they have that isn't yours. So being godly individuals means living respectfully towards God's established hierarchy. This is really apparent in the pastoral epistles in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. We see that the words translated as godliness there appear 14 times. And it's there that Paul gives us a real clear understanding of the principles of what living reverently within the institutions you are a part of means. For example... In the pastoral epistles, Paul shows us the proper role that men should take with other men. How women should be responsive to their husbands. How women should dress and act in the worship services. How older widows should act towards younger widows. How slaves should act towards their masters. How congregants should respond towards the the elders and deacons that God has raised up and that you have voted on, how citizens in general should act towards rulers and kings, and how all of us are to be praying for all men everywhere. That's the proper proper reverencing position to be in. And so these are all describing the proper way that all of us are to be submitting ourselves subjecting ourselves within God's ordained hierarchy and authority that he has established for us. And so this idea of subjecting ourselves and submitting to the authorities that God has ordained over us gradually developed into the idea of properly serving God by doing good within the relationships that he has established in his hierarchy. Because... When you are doing good toward the orders that God has established, you are doing good towards God himself. You are actually being godly in your relationships. Think of it this way. We could expend it a little bit more to take in the idea of the the sermon topic. 
Being godly means we accept his will in all things and don't seek to establish an order that he hasn't established for us. And this is really the heart of what Peter is getting at in this passage. Christ submitted himself perfectly to every situation and every relationship that God ordained for him to be in. That's why he's the perfect example for us to follow. And so being submissive then means we shouldn't seek to have relationships be other than the way that God has ordained them to be for us. Because when we go outside of that, we are not reverencing God. And so godliness is really the knowledge that Christians should live with the understanding that we are to reverently submit to the orders and hierarchy that God has established. And here's the reason why, ultimately, because all of those orders originate in the lofty and pure world of the divine. That's the reason we are to be reverent within the orders God has established. So getting back to the idea of the servants then in verse 18, whether God has placed you as a servant under a Christian master or under a pagan master, you are to be subservient to them, not only to the good ones who were gentle with you and treating you fairly, but to the harsh ones who treated you unfairly as well, and those who are crooked. And in the relationship with believing masters, you shouldn't disrespect them because they're brothers of yours in Christ. You should still maintain that right relationship with them and submit yourself to them. And you should serve them all the more because you are submitting to a beloved believer in that case. And so Peter says that these servants were to subject themselves in all fear. But remember again last week what Travis said, not in fear of the masters or the possible mistreatment you could receive, but keeping this idea of being reverent to the orders that God has established in mind, in all fear of God, being afraid to transgress his will and sin against him in the way he has divinely ordained your relationships to be. When we act reverently in all of our God-ordained relationships, Peter says that this is actually what grace is. In verse 19 he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Some translations say this is commendable, but literally the word there is chorus. It means this is grace. And so suffering for righteousness sake then is a beautiful and a pleasant thing in the eyes of God. Because when you suffer for righteousness sake, there is a, a beauty and a pleasantness and a genuine goodness in that kind of suffering. Because that kind of suffering is rooted in what is truly, truly good. And this is why God was so pleased with Christ's righteous suffering. When we suffer righteously, that can also be translated as it is thankworthy, or it is approved, or it is acceptable to God. And so suffering wrongfully finds favor with God because, now get this, that means that you are willing to suffer because in your conscience you acknowledge the reality of the existence of God who has established how we should respond in all of our relationships. So here Peter is just explaining that the servant has two choices really. 
He can fall into resentment towards the crooked, crooked pagan master, where he can refuse to subject himself or to submit himself to that master. But in doing that, he would be sinning against his Christian conscience. Or he can choose to do good to his master as his conscience tells him that he should. And the example of Jesus shows him that he should. Because he understands that it is God who has established what is right and good within that relationship. And he would thereby continue in God's favor and grace, even though he may be suffering wrongfully. And then Peter clarifies what he's saying in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And he's simply saying, what kind of glory or praise is it, or what credit is actually due to you if a servant is habitually beaten when he disobeys a master and he does it patiently, he accepts it patiently? If a servant is under the authority of a crooked master, he's going to have to suffer and be mistreated and reviled in any case. But if you suffer while you are doing good, there is glory and praise in the estimation of God in enduring that kind of suffering. And just in case any of the readers or any of us were thinking, well, I'm really glad that I'm not in a servant-slave relationship with anyone, so I don't have to suffer wrongfully, he immediately goes in and says, oh, you were all called to this suffering. There's no getting around it because you're not in a slave-master relationship. He says in verse 21, For to this kind of suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. So the saints are called to believe the gospel. But they're also called to follow the example of Christ and walk in his steps, especially when you have to suffer for doing righteous things. So here's how it worked. When the calling went out to you and you received the truth of the gospel and you listened to God's voice speaking to you in the gospel and you then enlisted in the service of God and Christ, At that very time, you were also called to this kind of wrongful suffering that comes from doing good in a world that rejects your point of view. You were called to the kind of abusive and wrongful suffering that might follow from doing good in a world that reviles you. You have been summoned in the gospel to participate in this kind of doing good that ends in wrongful suffering. And if these slaves Peter is writing to are wrestling with the suffering wrongfully part of the call, I think Peter wants them to come to the big realization. He wants to be sure that all of us really come to the realization that there isn't any comparison between Christ's doing good and suffering wrongfully and our doing good and suffering wrongfully. And so Peter brings this to our realization that we are to follow Christ because he is the one who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. 
And so the first difference between Christ's suffering and our suffering for doing good is that Christ never sinned. All that he ever did was only truly good. And his suffering for doing good is infinitely deeper than our suffering for doing good because even in our best doing good, we're still sinners. His example was perfect in every conceivable way, while even our following his example is imperfect. In fact, Christ was the perfect one suffering for the wrongs done by the imperfect. And no matter how severe our suffering for doing good might be, it's never anything close to the good of the sinless Christ dying for sinners instead of the sinner dying for his own sin. The one who committed no sin, not only did not sin, but could not sin. He did not do sin of any kind ever, nor could he ever. Let me make some clarifying points about Christ and his sinlessness. I think there's two reasons Christ could not sin. You know, I discovered in some discussions with some friends that there seems to be some confusion that Christ's Temptation to sin in the desert, in his humanity, was a temptation that he might have succumbed to. In fact, I think the inclusion in the New Testament of the devil testing his human character is really proof that he could not sin. Because if one isn't actually tempted to sin, there's no way we could actually know whether he would or not, unless he was actually tempted to sin. So I'm saying that Christ's temptation to sin was actually a real temptation. But here's two things to remember. Romans 8.3 says that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh. The, the likeness is that Christ came in the same flesh and blood as the children he came to save, but he was unable to sin in his flesh because he was also God in his flesh. Secondly, like we saw here this morning in the lyrics, the infinite infant God, Christ didn't become the Son at the Incarnation. Christ has always been the Son of God from all of eternity. It was the eternal Son of God that assumed a human nature. And so the difference between our flesh and Christ's flesh was that Christ didn't fall under the curse of sinfulness imputed to us when Adam sinned because none of Adam's sin was passed on to Jesus. And so the consequences of Adam's sin could not be passed on to him because Christ didn't have a human father. He had to be born of the Holy Spirit to be God and to be born of a human mother, to be in the flesh. And so not only do we believe the historical truth that he was born of the Holy Spirit of a virgin, but we also have to believe the reason why God did that that way, so that Christ would not be a sinner in human flesh. Christ could never lie under the wrath of God or the condemnation of God, because he was completely separate from a fleshly sinful nature. And so this is something that the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 7. He says, For such a high priest was befitting for us, who is holy, 
innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. But the word of the oath appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. That's a perfect participle. He is continuously in the past, always being made perfect, and continues to remain perfect. That's why he's our perfect example in everything. Christ reached his ultimate intended goal, being raised to the heavenly state of perfection. I think part of the difficulty for people getting this kind of centers around an improper understanding of the union between the eternal Son of God living in human flesh. I was some years ago teaching a class in critical thinking to a youth group at the church we were attending, and several of the parents were there in the classroom, and after the class, one of the parents came up to me and said she was a little upset with me for something that I had said. And she said, Rick, the difference between you and me is that I believe in a big God. And I thought, well, I think I believe in a pretty big God. And I said, how do you mean that? She said, well, I believe in a God that can do whatever he wants to. And if he wants to sin, he can. And I said, first of all, what what makes you think God would want to sin? But folks, listen, even in some kind of episode of, let's say, Star Trek, where there might be in some way our God could sin in some kind of alternate universe, the second that he did what she was suggesting he might have wanted to do, he wouldn't be the God that he is any longer. (laughs) Folks, Jesus couldn't sin any more than God the Father could sin, or any more than the Holy Spirit could sin. Because they can't do something outside of what their character allows them to do. Their characters are perfect. So getting back to 1 Peter in that second line there in in that that phrase, um, and no guile was found in his mouth, I want to ask a question. If If Peter knew that Christ was absolutely sinless, why would he add the phrase, nor was deceit found in his mouth? If someone never sinned, wouldn't that include the truth that that person would never speak deceitfully or craftily or lie about anything? Is there some kind of stipulation that might surface in the mind of the readers there that not ever sinning could actually allow for some occasional deceit and lying under specific or certain circumstances? You know, what would some abused servant think in his mind? Well, it's okay to deceive someone if you can avoid being beaten. That would be okay. Or when Peter says no God was found in his mouth, is he just helping us to recognize that no matter how good we think we are and how much we think we have suffered for righteousness' sake, every one of us has sinned by speaking deceitfully. Every one of us has sinned by speaking deceitfully. So there's really no comparison in the degrees of suffering here. And so then Peter goes on to verse 23 and he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That phrase, I think, is the heart of this passage. 
I don't want us to miss the huge implication in that statement. You see, because the, the provocation to retaliate with reviling and threatening would be extreme if we were to be subjected to the same kind of reviling and suffering that Christ experienced. Peter says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ handed everything about himself over to him who judges justly. I think that Christ's motivation to hand himself over to God in all circumstances is this. That whether the Father led him into situations where he was healing people and loved by them, or whether he was actually abused and threatened and reviled by them, or whether people loved worshiping him at his feet, or whether he was brutally beaten and ridiculed and mocked, or whether he amazed them with the miracles he performed, or was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to suffer righteously under the temptation of the devil. There was never a single moment in his 30-plus years that he was not absolutely trusting and accepting and honoring God the Father in every circumstance God placed him in. That's why he's the perfect example to follow in every sense. The reason he never threatened or reviled anything toward anyone was because he knew that whatever God had ordained for him was absolutely right and good. I'm reminded of the lyrics to a wonderful song here by Matthew Smith. I'm going to read them all to you. There's four little phrases. But just think of, think of Christ thinking this way, and I think this answers the question of why he never reviled or threatened. Whatever my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true each morn anew. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, he holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. Folks, I just think that Christ was so conscious of the reality of the presence of God and his goodness, so sure of God's mercy and goodness towards him, so reliant on God's favor and God's intention to do the ultimate good all the time through Christ, 
that Christ never ever wavered to do anything other than please God by subjecting himself to every circumstance that God placed him in. And Peter goes on in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Wow, what, a, what an amazing time I had this last week just thinking how theologically intriguing this whole idea is in this last section. Think with me for a minute. So God imputed our sin to the one person who was never tempted to sin, even when the devil was tempting him in his humanity at his weakest moment. God imputed our sin to the only person to whom it was impossible to associate with sin for any reason. God imputed our sin to the one to whom there was no reason for him to ever even suffer because of any wrongdoing or sinfulness that he had. That word stripes is actually in the singular, kind of a bad translation. It's probably better to translate it as wound or bruise, by whose wound or bruise you were made whole. And so by God inflicting that wound or that bruise on Christ, we were made free from our error and sinfulness. The reason I entitled the sermon, Whatever My God Ordains is Right, is because Peter is harking back here to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah sees every event in Christ's life as being orchestrated and ordained by the very hand of God. Christ not only willingly subjected himself to all the pain and the suffering and the misery and the agony associated with our sin, but he actually carried it onto the crucifixion tree in his body. You want some more theological intrigue? That perfect sinless one is described in Scripture as the one that the world would hold in complete contempt, despising and rejecting him because of the very sinfulness he was saving us from. Oh, my word. That should give us great pause to reconsider just how little we have actually suffered for righteousness' sake, but also how blinding our sin is in seeing what God was doing in Christ. Isaiah goes on to show us in that passage that, this is really fascinating, the Jews that watched him being crucified made the judgment in their minds that Jesus was vile and worthless, worthy only of mockery and abuse, because in their sinful thinking about that event, they thought God had stricken him down and done this because Jesus was actually God's enemy. Yet, Isaiah goes on to say, Yahweh was delighted to crush him and break him severely. The righteous suffering that Christ endured at the hand of God is the thing that led to our being at peace with God and was all laid upon Christ, the one who was sinless and perfect. 
Just a little bit more theological intrigue, chapter 2, before I finish, okay? Isaiah says that God looked upon all the trouble and all the suffering that he had done to Christ's soul and was satisfied in the knowledge of it. That did everything that needed to be done in that awful crucifixion. Everything that had to happen was perfectly done and brought to fulfillment. Christ was smitten by God's hand and it pleased God to put him through that suffering and that grief because Christ's submission to that suffering was not only a demonstration of the entirety of Christ's goodness, but Christ knew that it all had to happen exactly that way and that not only saved our sinful souls but brought ultimate glory to God and Christ and to us. That is theologically fascinating to think about that, I think. And that's why Christ would not revile or threaten in return, because he knew that what God had ordained for him to suffer was the highest ultimate good that could be achieved for us. And then he says in verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Folks, the truth is that all of us were only forever only going astray. Living in darkness through our ignorance and sin. Wandering away from any path of virtue or goodness to our own spiritual eternal ruin. But now God has returned us to the great protector and the one who watches over the welfare of our souls, turning us back to the true religion of God that finds its perfection in the sinless, righteous person of Jesus. We have so much to be thankful for when we think about what God did on our behalf in the perfect, sinless one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonder and your just amazing description of how you worked all of those things perfectly in Christ's life. And Father, help us to see your hand in all things that come into our life and to submit to them and subject ourselves to those things. Father, may your name be lifted up in our hearts and praise as we continue to worship this morning, as we sing about your goodness to us. Father, be a blessing to us. Now, in Christ's name I pray. Amen.